Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University at Texarkana. I realized last episode with my smuggler that I kind of forgot to give the, the introduction about where you can find us and track us down and all that. Um, so you can you can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on the Apple podcasting application. Um, we haven't gotten on Spotify yet, but if you'd uh, be willing to drop us a review on either iTunes or share with your friends, we'd really appreciate it. Um, as much fun as I've had hosting the show and kind of getting back into a... Uh, it kind of reminds me of graduate school watching the same text and discussing it and not necessarily having a definitive read on it, but able to kind of hash out some issues that you see in a text. You'll find out today with Petra von Kant that I'm still kind of struggling with it. I've seen it one time now and uh, kind of walking it through and uh, almost feeling like I, I didn't see it the first time at all because you're reading subtitles and you're digesting the story before you're necessarily paying attention to visuals. Um, I really enjoy this kind of um, graduate school discussion that we, we get out of this, um, but I also kind of hope it helps other people uh, get introduced to other films. So if you could drop us a review or share a, share a link to the podcast, I'd... Uh, really appreciate it. Um, so let's cut to the chase today to discuss um, Fassbender's Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant with me is Dr. Allison Rittmeyer, uh, Associate Professor of Film Studies in English at Northwestern State University in Louisiana, where she has taught since fall 2013. Fun aside, Allison and I actually met in Shreveport one time to go see some art movies at the Robinson Film Center, so uh, we, are, uh, we are kind of colleagues in the same four states region and it's uh it's been fun to collaborate with her on a couple things uh she has presented at numerous film conferences and is currently working on a book about ethics trauma and state violence in both fiction and documentary film she's also the book review editor for the interdisciplinary journal southern studies she received her phd in film and media studies and english from the university of florida well, thanks so much for joining me today allison I'll ask you the first question that I, I tend to ask most of the guests, and that's kind of what what got you into movies? What got you set on this path to, to study movies for your life, and what movie kind of changed your life and changed the way you looked at movies? Um, well, I feel like I have a weird path to this, or weirder than some. You know, I don't Every, think everyone of... says they have a weird <laughs> path, and then and then they tell the story, and it's like eh, it's... it's the same as everybody else. Yeah. You know. Um, but I guess I feel like there's this perception that we like people who study film and teach film were like hold up with movies all the time and always go into the blockbuster and whatnot. But that wasn't me. Um, I really got into like serious film study in college. Um, you know, I was an English major and a French major and the first film classes I took were in French and, and you know, where I was this at Bucknell oh, okay. university. Um, so I didn't start with Eric Faden but, um, you know, I started with a visiting film professor, Thibaut Shield, and he was teaching a class on uh, French women filmmakers. And so everything I learned, all the film vocab was in French the first time around. <laughs> so now when I teach first time fr film students and they're all like nervous and like intimidated by the vocab, I'm like, just imagine learning it for the first time in a second language. Huh. Um, I was like, this handout I'm giving you is the handout I had, only my version was in French and I've translated it and, <laughs> you know, added things along the years. So it really was, you know, starting 
watching films by people like Claire Denis um, and um, Kristen Thompson and Catherine Breyat and, and all of those, Agnes Varda, you know, all of that really brought me into it. You know, I'd always been interested in movies, but it wasn't really something serious for me. Um, you know, I can sort of like backtrack now and be like, well, I grew up watching the Marx Brothers. <laughs> so that made me into a cinephile. Um, and I was always the, the one like picking weird movies. Like my friends and I would have sleepovers and watch movies. That was like when we got to spend blockbuster so, money. So, so you, you happened into film studies through French. So what drew you to yeah. French in the first place? Um, I honestly... I think I just wanted to go to France. I started French <laughs> in middle school. So That's I fair. was um, 12 when I made that life-changing decision between French and Spanish. Okay. Um, that has started many a war and bitter rivalry, you know. Um, so I, I started French in seventh grade and um, never stopped because I was like, you know, did it all through high school. And I was like, well, why would I stop now? Uh, you know, when I can keep doing it in college and not, you know, and I've finally just now gotten beyond like all of the grammar stuff. Like I'm no longer in that acquisition phase. Like now I'm sure. like culture and like reading novels, watching films, you know, learning art history and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, I, I just, I started college. This is my other like revelation. I was a chemistry major. Um, so part of my, my vision of myself was like working for a French or Belgian pharmaceutical company <laughs> and being, being a chemistry and French double major. Um, I had a fellowship, like an academic fellowship where I was like working as a presidential fellow for the French department with John Westbrook. Hi, John. Um, and so I was doing all this French stuff and then doing the chemistry stuff. And then I realized in college that chemistry was terribly boring. Um, and I didn't want to just dropper and titrate things over and over again every day. And that's when I swapped chemistry for English, kept the French and things made a little bit more sense to other people in the okay. world of like my major choices. But, um, so, you know, I missed English while I was doing the chemistry. I had an English seminar my freshman year, not like, um, that was on like gender and sexuality, not a comp 101 type English class. So I was, I was just doing weird stuff, <laughs> weird combinations of stuff. Like here's organic chemistry. Here's Cal two. Well, here's... <laughs> hearing the story now, it is, it is a little weird, uh, in comparison with some of the other guests, but not totally off base. I mean, yeah. a, a lot of the, a lot of the guests I've had have noted that they weren't necessarily in love with movies as a teen or anything like that. And then they take like a film class or they're an English major who takes, you know, the, the, you know, the culture, you know, like at Milwaukee, right. we had a culture track where you could, you know, you read Shakespeare and you read mm -hmm. novels, but then you took a film class and uh, they'll take the one class like that and it changes their perception and they realize they can do that as a living. And they're like, Hey, this is kind of cool. Um, but I think what, what's unique about your approach, not only is like the, the scientific angle, although I've met a lot of, <laughs> um, like a lot of my grad cohort at UCLA, I think somebody in there was like a physics, like had, had done a master's in physics wow. and yet it really changed the, the kind of conversation in the room, which is of course what we all hope for. But, um, yeah, I think you're the first guest who kind of came at it tangentially through like a neighboring field, which is yeah. it's gotta be kind of fascinating. So 
What, so you were, it was predominantly, that first class for you is predominantly just on French female filmmakers, French yep, women filmmakers, female French filmmakers, and um, you know. Then after that, well, that was that wasn't until my junior year of college, so I was also okay. late in the game because um, that was a junior senior seminar, and um, then I was just sort of doing film stuff in other classes. Like if I was given the option after that, um, doing. I did my master's at Bucknell as well. And I did an independent study there. That was also like French. Um, that was on the films about the Algerian war. Okay. Um, films and fiction about the Algerian war. And then that sort of developed into what I've been working on and what I'm working on now about ethics and torture and violence and all of that good fun stuff. Um, so yeah, it's been a weird journey. I never thought about doing a PhD in French, hmm. um, you know, cause my interests by that point were broader than just, you know, French cinema or something like that. Well, so. and, and this is why I asked that question. I, I always find that people, right. These different approaches we all take to the subject matter have very different pros and cons to them. So, right. Mm -hmm. You talk, you were talking about how you've seen all these Claire Denis films. I, I don't think I've ever actually seen one when I was coming up with the list of movies. Oh, well, we'll do this again. Next yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was like, when I was coming up with the list of things to watch um, for this year, the, the selections this year, I was like, what are my like four big blind spots? And one was Fassbender and mm -hmm. Lars von Trier. But it was like, when I did film, we had, I mean, we had an introduction like to film art class where it was like, you'd get a smattering of foreign film, right? I think we did like Breathless. Right. Um, but, and then Eisenstein. But then beyond that, it was, we had, we didn't have an American film history class at Milwaukee. We had world cinema and it was A and B. Hmm. So it was like before, you know, World War Two, and then okay. after World War Two. But like, you might only get a week on Germans on right, post-war exactly. ger German cinema. So it's like we did Ali Fearitz the Soul and I think it was Agiri the Wrath of God. And those were the those were the two that was all you got. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, you know, and it was there that that leads to some significant blind spots even if you're kind of well-intentioned like me and you try to like seek other things out, you know, you still kind of perpetuate right. certain stereotypes like i you know i went down the godard hole for a long time and it was like i watched like so many of those but of <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah you well, know I'm, I'm you know i feel the same way catching up on american film because i'm completely sure. not an american filmist which is weird because i do american literature i teach southern literature graduate classes um so i was completely americanist that way but now with film it's like okay all these great American movies I haven't seen. <laughs> so it's it's kind of funny, like, you know, hearing different people, meeting people professionally and, and finding out where our different... I don't want to call them weak spots. But no, the, it, Blind yeah. spots, you know. Um, yeah, no, yeah. and, and it's, I've, I've got one hopefully coming up. I have to talk to Chris Bear, Becker and Derek Kampar, but I don't think any of them have seen The Godfather, and so that's oh, wow. like, the, yeah, like that. Um, and I'm like, I guess See, that I I used to watch that on AMC. Yeah, My mom would make but, fun of me because like a whole week, all of like Easter break or whatever, I'd be on the couch watching all three Godfathers. But it, it's but it's so weird, and it's like how like you know you, your first reaction is kind of like mine, but then when I say Greece to someone, like I never like thought of Greece as being in this like important movie I needed right, to watch and yeah. it's like I'm like I'm sure people well, and 
yeah. neither would I have, yeah. like, as a teenager watching that <laughs> with my friends. Yeah. But then, like, I also made my friends watch, like, The Virgin Suicides and The Hours because even <laughs> then I was like, these are films about women and we need to watch them. <laughs> and I think Virgin Suicides went a little bit better than The Hours. So you're just, like, also depressed by the end of that. It was like, this is not a sleepover movie. I haven't seen the hours, but I I do love Virgin Suicides, especially rewatching it uh, on that new Criterion disc, which they put so much you know TLC mm-hmm. into, and yeah, now it's got such a great soundtrack, and I love yeah. the the Josh Hartnett reveal where he's just yeah. the kind of burnout, you know, well done. Well, and the it's line. so you know Upper Midwest, so yeah. For you, like location and everything. No, that's uh, true. That's true. But- so, as I said, Fastbender is is my blind spot here, and so I'm I, I had been procrastinating on his movies for a long time, and I'm I'm not really sure why I I was doing that. Maybe maybe part of it's because I knew he's difficult and and can be kind of abrasive, but I'm also I was thinking about this last night. It was like I like abrasive Godard movies. I like I like Rocky marriage movies. Like you know I. Journey to Italy is, is one of my favorites. I can get behind watch and contempt. Right. I don't know why I have this kind of aversion to him. Um, maybe maybe it's melodrama coupled with the, the abrasiveness because melodrama has never necessarily been my bag. But yeah, coming into this, the only one I had seen uh, was Ali Firit's The Soul. And I've, I've kind of, you know, and then I did World on a Wire maybe two years ago. And then mm-hmm. the last week I've watched maybe four of his movies. <laughs> and I, I did like his first one. I did Love is Colder Than Death, uh, which was actually... Have you seen that one? No. So it, it, it's, haven't. I, it was interesting because... I, I mean, I guess I had this idea of what Fassbender does in my head based on what I had read in other books and what people have said, and I kind of thought everything was going to be, you know, in beautiful 16-millimeter color and mm-hmm. very melodramatic and kind of overcranked and a, a little theatrical right. in nature. And uh, Love is Colder Than Death is very much just him doing, like, Band of Outsiders. <laughs> and okay. the, the characters are named after French New Wave figures. And it's like uh-huh. this guy who's being, you know, they're trying to rope Fassbender, who plays the, the lead character, into being a hitman. And he doesn't want to do it. And so his best friend, like, they, they it, like might have to kill him. And they, like, go shopping for, like, <laughs> hitman clothes. And, you know, right, right. yeah, like, so it's... It's a caper. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah, in the way that Godard films are capers that aren't, right? Ca- right. But yeah, like, I'm watching it, and I'm like, this is fascinating, but it's also, like, so in debt to everybody else that I, it's it's hard to see where he is as a person, so as, like, an experiment, I was I was kind of like, huh, this, this isn't where I thought he would have started off, given where he ended up, um, and I also don't see much of him in here at all. It seems more of just, like, in the way that early first films are often just about the influences and who made them, right? It's just kind of right. the showcase for those. Um, so that that was an interesting experience. And then I did Fox and His Friends and uh, Bitter Tears. And so you can definitely see some kind of points of connection there, but I, I'm wondering what in general in Fassbender's kind of career do you think makes him such a key figure in world cinema? Um, for me, I think, you know, part of it is that confrontational nature, although I, I don't know that I would say confrontational, um, 
but and I'd hate to say uncompromising that sounds you know sort of cliche as well but um the way that he develops uh his characters to be these you know what we would now you know we think about as you know very multi-dimensional um complex characters um who are neither wholly positive or wholly negative yeah. representations uh and i you know that's why i was you know toying with uncompromising confrontational sure. because you know throughout his career he got a lot of backlash for not having positive representations or not having wholly positive representations of women and queer people. Um, and I think that sort of came to define his films in terms of content uh, in a lot of ways, you know, in terms of form, I think it's his sense of space um, mm. and the way that he uses space and geometry and, um, line to you know guide the action of his characters and to reinforce you know the themes of what's going on and you get a really strong sense of that in in Ali Furious's soul um you know with the the different square and circle sort of configurations and sure. in enveloping the characters in space or cutting them off um you get a little less of that in the bitter tears of Petra von Kant but uh, it's still there in the sort of layering of space that Marlena's sort of workshop area, office area, is is lower down than the bedroom central area where most of the things take place. And then there's still an entry, and that's cut off by the glass panes. And so we get to see Marlena leaning against that, kind of caressing the glass. Um, and then this this just this whole allusion to this the rest of the space of the house, because there are stairs. Sure. And the cats on the stairs the and we see Marlena yeah. go up and down the stairs, but we are never, what is, what's in that space? We don't, we don't know. Um, you know, is that just, it's not just a doorway up. Um, from what I remember, there's an implication that there are rooms upstairs yeah. that they have access to. So, um, you know, just that dynamic use of, use of space and, and these um, really complicated conflicting characters or conflicted characters of both um that's that's what makes it important to me okay um have you seen fox and his friends i have not see so, um, so now okay. this is like again this is this is what's was kind of interesting to me so again that's that's kind of the, your your summary of what makes fast bender fast bender was kind of what i had going on in my mind going into uh, Fox and his friends, and what made that one kind of a surprise for me, if Love Was Colder Than Death was surprising because it was more Godard and French New Wavy than I knew his later stuff to be, um, Fox and his friends kind of surprised me because they didn't seem like overly complex characters. It's almost they're they're almost more types in that movie um, right. because it's essentially he plays Fox, and Fox is this lower uh, class kind of uncultured, naive. Um, gay guy who magically buys a lottery ticket. He's like obsessed right. with buying a lottery. He buys it and he wins like maybe 300 marks. Like it's enough to like, he, he's, he becomes rich, but it's yeah. not like a lot of money. And essentially he falls in with the, with the gay community in uh, 
trying to remember what part of Germany it takes in. Um, he falls in with the gay community. He meets this kind of older guy who's played by, um, what's his name? Carl Baum? I think he's the the lead in Peeping Tom, the Powell and Pressburger movie. So I was kind of wow. distracted for a minute. I was like, hey, I know that guy's yeah. face. Um, Carl Baum, sorry. Carl Hunt, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... So he falls in with this guy who kind of teaches him the ways, and he's like, let me introduce you to my friends, and he, he meets these younger uh, gay guys who hook up with him, but like within 20 minutes, you know that this partner of him is just, you know, taking advantage of him right. and berating him for his money. So there's either a scene where uh, the, the boyfriend character talks Fox into buying something that he can't afford under the guise of like, this is for us, whether it's a sports car or an apartment. You know, and it's like it, it and the scenes just constantly cut back and forth. So you'll get one of those and then you'll get a scene where the boyfriend takes Fox out to dinner at like a beautiful French restaurant and then makes fun of him for being unable to speak French and not knowing mm-hmm. what anything is. And right. basically being like, see, you're so silly. You need me to kind of show you. So in a certain way, there's there's this kind of codependent relationship that will. We'll right. talk about in a little bit, but at the same time, I, I never saw a level of nuance to this boyfriend character where I'm just sitting there for like 90 minutes like, Jesus, just, you know, like, this guy is just horrible, and I don't I don't know, like, why, uh, and then you're frustrated right, at like, Fox, yeah. yeah. And so, like, part of me, it, it almost felt like kind of more Brechtian in the sense that these people are almost kind of ciphers or stand-ins for... Mm-hmm. Uh, a type rather than of somebody who was fully uh, nuanced, which which kind of mm-hmm. took me back a little bit and kind of frustrated me. Um, but I didn't see that in Petra von Kant. And I think that's that's kind of one of the interesting things about Fassbender is he does so many films and they're all, you know, he's got right. his melodrama period, but then he does World on a Wire, which is the mm-hmm. sci-fi movie. And he's constantly kind of trying these new styles and new ideas and these new approaches right. out. Um. You know, I taught a class last semester. I think I told you this when we were talking about yeah. this, get recording this session. Um, it was a class on melodrama, but I focused on Douglas Sirk, Fassbender, Todd Haynes, and then Wong Kar Wai. And um, when I told my students how many films Fassbender made in how short a period of time, like they always fall out of their chairs. Sure. Like, you kidding me? Like 40 some films and, and then he died. Um, I was like, yeah, just imagine if he had stayed alive, although, you know, um, so yeah, he kind of cycles through things and I think he kind of, you would have to, I don't know. I can't imagine, um, what it would be like to be that productive to produce that much that, you know, you would have to be trying new things constantly. Um, and, and yeah, he, he does get into some kind of weirder more interesting stuff uh, towards the end and um but looking at the the melodrama period you know you get a get more of a sense of coherence i think so i'm curious how do you define melodrama for your students because i always have (sighs) such a it's always such a challenge so how do you get them to understand melodrama as being different from drama or related to drama you know what's your approach you know, for for me, we talk about, you know, we talk a little bit about the history of melodrama, kind of going back to theater. Mm. Um, but the big difference is, you know, 
that there's a line between sort of psychological drama and melodrama. And when we talk about drama and like, you know, high quality dramatic film, usually we're talking about psychological drama um, and this, you know, complex character psychology. Um, whereas melodrama, the character psychology is maybe not quite as complex, although it can be. Um, but I think that it's a lot of externalizing mm. of the conflict um, and tackling big social issues. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of melodrama is tackling big sort of social issues um, or, you know, questions of belonging and who belongs to a community and who doesn't or what it means to constitute a community. And, but at the end of the day, we kind of like tore it all down because, you know, melodrama, I love to, to quote this because it's like Todd Haynes is just talking about Far From Heaven on the sure. special features um, and he's like, melodrama comes from melos and drama, music and action, <laughs> music and drama. Um, so it's this, you know, sense of melodic um, melody, um, harmony, you know, those sorts of things. But, you know, we talked about people think that melodrama is just this heightened sense of emotion, um, which, yeah, it's true. But then, you know, what film doesn't have a heightened sense of emotion when big action is happening. I was sure. like, let's look at the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> I'm going I love to convince it. you in the next two minutes that the Fast and the Furious is a melodrama. Harry Potter, melodrama. You know, when you think about the way that, you know, these franchise films or even, you know, big Hollywood serious dramas you know, play sure. with our emotions, the kinds of questions that they're asking, you know, you're like, yeah, that could be a melodrama, couldn't it? So, you know, part of me, yes, it's, you know, there are these divisions between the psychological and the melodrama um, and the types of questions they're asking. But the other part of me is always pressing against that impulse. You know, what, what does make something a melodrama? Why isn't everything a melodrama? How did your students react to melodrama as a genre? Was it something that they kind of were familiar with or were they, or did they kind of balk against it? Cause I, I always, I think one of my, the reasons I was adverse to watching Fastbender films is I, I don't particularly care for melodrama. And I think it's because I always feel self-conscious of being manipulated and I don't like feeling emotion. I, I get this way even watching Steven Spielberg movies sometimes right, where I'm like, right. you don't need that yeah. score there. I, I no. get the point, right? Um, so how did your how did your students kind of react <laughs> to melodrama? Um, I think they were really good sports about it. Um, <laughs> they they don't have any other choice. Um, so that okay. was it. Was the <laughs> last semester I taught intro to film and I taught melodrama. Those were my two film courses. So if you'd already had intro, you were going to take melodrama if you needed it. Um, but on the other hand, I think they also didn't quite know what to expect. Um, they didn't necessarily know what differentiated melodrama. That's why this, okay, let's talk about the sure. Fast and the Furious worked, or let's talk about, I, I don't even remember what other, the Lion King. Um I always do the the Henry Jenkins piece on wrestling. Do you ever read his WWF piece on masculine no. melodrama? It's fa it's so fun. Oh yes, it, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, it's all right. Right. Um, 
you know, and we, we talked about body genres and things like that. But, you know, I started, we started with four weeks of Douglas Sirk. Um, and they, I, I did it chronologically. They did not like Magnificent Obsession. They were like, these coincidences are too much. These like twists of fate and chance are too much. Like, this is not realistic. But then like, you know, Written on the Wind, All That Heaven Allows. Um, and then we finished with Imitation of Life. True. You know, they were into it then. Um, huh. So first there was a little bit of distance. Um, and I do, and Magnificent Obsession does have more sort of turns of fate and chance than the other films, but um, they got into it pretty quickly. You know, there were still times where they were like, oh, why did you do this? Why did you? Like, then they're like, it's a movie. That's why it's a romantic movie. You know, sure. I was like, how is this different from any other romantic comedy aside from being sad? Um, <laughs> you know, the same sorts of things happen. And then, you know, they'd liked. Fassbender. Um, Which Fassbender films did you pick? So we watched Ollie Fury's Soul. We watched The Bitter Tears and we watched The Marriage of Maria Brown. And did we watch a fourth one? I can't remember because last semester was so long ago. Uh, <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> um, I think we only, we ended up, no, we watched Veronica Voss. Okay. Um, so we watched before Fassbender. Then we sort of alternated between um, Todd Haynes and Wong Kar Wai. So we watched Happy Together. They watched Safe and In the Mood for Love. And then Far From Heaven. And we ended with Carol. Okay. For, for Christmas break, we watched Carol. <laughs> and how did they react to the other auteurs? Um, they were super into them. They were they were ready to watch more Wong Kar Wai, ready to watch more Todd Haynes. This is like the first time that I've had a whole class enjoy Safe. Yeah, uh, no, that's a that's that's a hard watch. I mean, yeah. that and Poison, I'm just like. Whoa. I saw him once. I don't know if I can do it again. <laughs> right. That's like, I'm, I'm going to teach. I'm going to show my class. I'm teaching a film, gender and sexuality as you are. Um, and I'm just going to show the, the horror section of poison sure. to them next week. Um, but I think because they had been on this strange melodrama journey, they were ready for safe when they got there. Okay. You know, they had already been through, Fassbender's, you know, sort of alienation, um, adding of the alienation to the melodrama. Um, so it wasn't quite as stark for them um, once we got to safe, whereas students in the past have just been like, I have no feelings about Carol White. Like, I really, who is this woman who cares? Um, so it was interesting, but it was, it was, it was good. Um, and I'm glad it turned out well. Uh, because I'm gonna do it again. So, <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't completely surprise me that they took to something like Wong Kar Wai like that. Like, right? Yeah. Right. Anytime I show in, in the mood for love, I mean, initially it's like, oh, there's subtitles. I'm like, just wait. And then it's like, you know, they're they're taken by it or right. happy together. There's something kind of chicken soupy 
about all of his movies and just so beautiful that they they kind of you know allow it to happen but yeah like i wasn't sure necessarily about the the harder tie on haynes and the the fast bender yeah it we got we got a little bit of mixing of the difficult and the the easy (laughs) which i don't always do well every semester i try and then i'm like but they need to watch these films so i feel like there was a good balance in that class balance is important i did i think handmaid's tale and clockwork orange back to back last semester and i was like yeah i'm (laughs) I'm not gonna do that again (laughs) like yeah that's the balance well next week and and you know next week i i realized just now that i'm teaching both philadelphia and schindler's list um in the same week and some students have me for both classes i'm like i didn't do that on purpose it's just how the semester texts lined up i'm sorry five <laughs> lots of tissues kids uh, we'll get through it well what i want to do now is give a real quick summary and by quick i mean it's probably going to be like two or three sentences of uh the bitter tears of petra von kant so if you haven't seen the film or you care about spoilers now is the time to turn off um although i can't imagine you would have pressed play on this in the first place uh if you weren't interested in what we have to say about it so um petra von kant is a is a fashion designer and uh the bulk of the film as we've already kind of alluded to takes place in her uh kind of workshop apartment in this attic space in her uh in her house um it's it's very kind of theatrical in nature um it's predominantly her and her uh servant marlene um and marlene is mute and often asked by petra to do things for her get her more tea get her more drinks uh go work on a sketch and it's it's very much this kind of s&m relationship where she's kind of constantly bossing her around um midway through karen uh, a young fashion model is introduced and petra kind of takes to her and tries to how would i say exercise a little bit of control over her life but it quickly becomes apparent that karen kind of stands out on her own she's married she has her own child and she's like listen i i I like you you know they're they're in love and they have a relationship but she's also not necessarily cutting off this other limb of her life for uh Petra and as the film progresses Petra kind of does this 180 where she goes from being the dominator to Marlene and Karen to being kind of emotionally subservient to Karen and her whims uh or at least making herself subservient to it it's not necessarily that Karen wants that uh, role and by the end of it she's basically laying on the floor looking at her telephone waiting for Karen to call her and getting upset when she doesn't and and you know this kind of leads her to a revelation to turn Marlena away and and say hey or well not turn her away but to say that I'm going to be better to you in the future I've been horrible and I'm sorry for bossing you around and Marlena packs up and leaves when that happens so I, I, was there anything I missed that you you feel like you need to work in there for a little bit uh, of a talk that's pretty good that's yeah a, that's a fair summary i think okay okay um so my initial reaction i'll start with my initial reaction um was i i, I really enjoyed the film um from a stylistic standpoint and i, mm-hmm. I actually thought compared to fox and friends i did finally kind of have that moment where i was like 
oh, Petra von Kant is this kind of fully realized character, and I'm kind of... I'm I'm interested in this ambiguity, even if I'm not, like, emotionally kind of drawn to her, because I don't really understand this relationship. I don't know why you'd want to treat other people this way. I mm-hmm. at least kind of want to know what makes her tick. Um, so there there was a bit of uh, kind of a an appeal to her as a psychologically defined character. And there was also, for me, I just was constantly kind of amazed at what, Fassbender and Bauhaus, Michael Bauhaus, the cinematographer, were doing with that room. And Mm -hmm. you've already kind of talked a little bit about the layering of space, but just like the different moments where you have this extremely long take and it'll like start to swoop around. And as soon as Petra says something, you know, about how much she cares about Karen, you know, um, you know, Marlene will be revealed in the far background and just like turn very slowly and it becomes this really devastating moment. And those two things floored me. At the same time, I just and I think of other movies kind of in this in this mode, like Duke of Burgundy, which I feel like owes a lot mm-hmm. to uh, Bitter Definitely, Tears. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and I, I think he Peter probably has, has said that yeah. he owes a debt. I'm teaching that this semester. Oh, too, okay. Again, for the second time. But yeah, yeah. I, I guess there's just something about these relationships where I'm just like, why would you, why would you treat someone like this? Why would you want to be treated like this? Where it just like it kind of throws a monkey wrench into my, into my heart, <laughs> where I can't like fully get on board. But that was that was kind of my first read of it. Uh, well, you know, yeah, that's. Um, I think it can be hard to get inside of exactly what's going on in their relationship and then you know when i taught it my students were like is this an snm relationship or is she just treating her like garbage um you know how much of this is actually voluntary sure you know or or asked for or or something like that because they're very conscious about consent and contracts and things like that um and i'm like the film doesn't tell us explicitly um but, you know, canonically, it's been understood that this is a consensual relationship. So, yeah, knowing that makes it hard to, okay, what is the kind of person that would want this? But I don't know that that's wholly important, especially since we just don't know yeah. very much about Marlena. I mean, we get Petra's yeah. sort of background, but... Uh, and we can sort of psychologize her through her talking about her husbands and sure. her daughter and her mother and, and Sidonie and all of that. But um, Mylena is is a cipher, you know. Well, I guess that's kind of what, what fascinates me about this film. On one hand, it's a melodrama, which almost requires empathy, like a great deal of mm-hmm. empathy to be on its you know, for it to work. And at the right. same time, it's it's holding you at arm's length. So it's like this this push and pull going on between the two. Cause yeah, you don't understand Marlene at all. And you know, she, she doesn't utter a word. And I think of that moment where you, where I finally realized that she wasn't going to talk in the film where she picks up the phone and Petra just takes it away from her and is yeah. like, I, I got it, you know? When I, and you know, the shots where she's back with the mannequins, mm-hmm. you know, do a great job of, of reinforcing it. It's, you know, it's almost, you know, like she's part of the set dressing, um, part of, she's just part of the mise-en-scene. She just moves. She exists. Um, and her face is powdered 
white too. No. Um, you know, she's Irm Herman Irm Herman is is powdered pale throughout the film. Um, which makes her look even more like the mannequins. And and I'm sure that was all intentional. Like, let's make her more pale, blend in more. Um, but, you know, what we, we also, you know, raised the point to my students. I was like, does Petra actually do any work? um because you know thinking about you know that she's this renowned designer and marlena is her assistant and marlena is the one we see doing the sketching doing the sketching draping the fabric pinning the fabric on the mannequin so it's you know is this you know also is that part of their relationship is this another level of exploitation or is it another level of the domination and submission relationship um and 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 that's another thing we don't have a a definitive answer to but it's fun it's because marlena is figured as so plain her costumes it's long sleeves high collar whereas the costuming for Karen and Petra is so over the top and so expressive um, that it's funny that the the fashion designer's apprentice has no sort of outward expression of fashion. Um, she just dresses. She dresses almost like a maid, um, yeah, just to be invisible again. No, absolutely. Um, so, how did you kind of? Picking up on the costume angle, what did your students kind of make of this much more kind of expressive and ornate dressing of of the characters? How did you guys kind of unpack that? Um, We talked a lot about the sort of mirroring that went Mm -hmm. on in Marlena's and Karen's costumes, Um, how as their relationship not Marlena and Karen, Petra and Karen, Um, you know, how as their relationship evolves, their costuming becomes more and more similar, um, not necessarily in, in, in terms of colors or or being identical. um, But we see Petra in that, I think it's navy blue, strappy, outfit with like um what kind of pants would would you call those i think it's pants um not quite hammer pants but like genie sure. pants you know what you know what yeah, I, yeah, I, I, parachute what pants about. yeah uh, parachute pants yeah harem pants harem pants is what i was thinking <laughs> of um and she's all in the dark and has the dark curly wig at that point but you know, we have Karen on the other hand, who's the light colored version of that. She's in the light. Her hair is light and frosted and, and piled up. Um, but she also is wearing a very sort of strappy dress at the same time. Um, and, you know, and a lot of attention gets paid to Petra and her outfit looking like a bondage outfit. Um, sure. But ignoring that Karen is wearing something strikingly similar, just in, you know, baby colors. 
uh, pastel pinks and beiges and golds are kind of Karen's colors. You know, even the hair styles change, the hair colors change, or at least Petra's change. Um, sure. And then the ultimate joke gets played at the end when Sidney brings her that doll that looks like Karen. Um, and Petra is not having it, but Petra was wearing a blonde wig at that point. So she was, you know, if Karen's not going to be here, I'm going to turn myself into Karen. Yeah. Um, But we talked a lot about um, the costuming, you know, sort of reflecting the movement of the character, their situation, um, how Petra's costuming changes through the film. Um, <laughs> My brain has come to no, a no, no, it's all right. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's 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 a complex movie. Like in certain ways, I almost wish I had watched it twice because I, I I have that kind of first reading every time where I'm you know paying such close attention to plot that you know like costumes, especially with a subtitled film where right, I have to yeah. read it. I'm like, oh shit, I should be you know paying more attention to what's going on with the shadows on that painting on the wall, you know, on that mural or what what's going right. on there. Right. We're talk about the painting, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. What do you? Um. Yeah, you know, we talked a lot about the painting, and there's a lot been written about the painting. Um, did you did you do any research into I, the painting I, I at all? I actually didn't do much research because oh, I, I literally Excellent. watched it really late last night, and I was like, I was oh, like, okay. yeah, I didn't put in my my due diligence. This I mean, time. I, I I saw your Facebook post, but I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, no, no, to what no, no, no please enlighten me. I, I would uh, love it. <laughs> so it's by the French painter Poussin, P O U S S I N. And it's a painting of Bacchus and Midas, King Midas. Um, and mostly what we see is Bacchus. Bacchus is a, the, the central naked male figure standing up. Um, and, you know, the story, most people know the story of King Midas. He, um, but don't necessarily know the beginning and the end. They just know that he had the golden touch. Sure. Um, he gets the golden touch because he sort of rescues Salinas, who's one of Bacchus's satyrs. And I think was like his oldest friend or tutor or something like that. Um, but Salinas like fell asleep, wandered off drunk and fell asleep somewhere. And Bacchus thought he was lost. Midas finds him, brings him back and, then Bacchus is like, well, what would you like as a reward? And that's what Midas says. I'd like everything I touch to turn to gold. And that ends terribly. So but he, Midas comes back to Bacchus um, and is like, I can't eat. Sure. <laughs> I, I have turned my daughter into gold, depending on which version of the myth you've heard. Um, how do I get rid of this? And Bacchus says, well, if you go bathing this river, um, you'll be washed clean of it. And so he does, and all is well with the world. And the myth is supposed to be an explanation of how this one riverbank has so many, how much has so much gold sediment in it. Um, so that's the, the how the myth is teaching us okay. about the natural world is about the gold sediment. Um, but the painting is actually now I've gotten myself confused. I think the painting is that. Midas has just cleansed himself of the golden touch and has come back 
to thank Midas or to thank Bacchus for it, um, for, for curing him or fixing him or taking him back to where he was before. Um, if it's not that, then it was, he's there begging Bacchus to get rid of the golden touch. Um, but I think it's after he's gotten rid of the golden touch. Um, and there's one figure to the left of Bacchus kind of asleep and looks like an old man. That's Salinas. So he's like, we see that he's there and all is well. Um, but the film doesn't show the full extent of the painting. The painting actually is larger than what's shown as part of the wallpaper. Um, so we see Bacchus and Salinas and Midas, but we don't see other various satyrs and cherubim and the river um, that's in the fuller painting. And, you know, it's a really striking piece because it's this, like, literally huge male presence in the film that has an entirely female cast. Um, there's an alluded to husband and alluded to ex-husband, but that's it. They don't appear. Sure. Um, so, it's, you know, questions about why is there this male intrusion on this space um but i think it's more about the mythology than it is about the figuration um you know it's about not knowing what you're asking for not knowing not understanding the consequences of what you're doing um and not understanding power Hmm. And how power can be wielded, I think, is is at the heart of that myth. Because Midas just thinks, yeah, everything I touch can turn to gold. Not, okay, exception. Let's put an <laughs> asterisk. Um, the gods aren't going to take me literally. Uh, but the gods are like, yeah, great, fine. Easy enough. Um, and Box is like, poof, there you go. Knock your socks off. Except they'll turn to gold. Um <laughs> But my, my, Bacchus doesn't care what happens to Midas, sure. you know. Um, so there's sort of this echo of a dominant and submissive, submissive relationship in the relationship between Bacchus and Midas. Um, Bacchus has the power to fulfill Midas's wishes, but is that really what Midas wants? Um, and Bacchus can fix things, um, and Midas you know, in the end is left back where he started. Maybe he has a new appreciation for things. Um, that's why they tell this story to children is, you know, he was so sorry about turning his daughter to gold and I'll never be mean to her again. Um, but for Petra and, and Marlena and Karen, um, you know, there's this, big question about what are what are what are the rules of these relationships yeah uh, no that's that's what so you explaining the painting i'm trying to quite decide who is who in it because right, you, right yeah like you think of it and it's like well obviously midas is petra and it's like well is it because like at a certain point you know petra kind of wields this power over karen and turns her into this model and is like hey i've done this you're on the in the newspaper now look at this and 
yeah, it becomes, you know, it's almost more power that isn't necessarily detrimental to uh, who she is, right? It doesn't destroy her uh, to be in the paper in the way that Midas turning his daughter into gold does. Right. Um, but then Karen wields the power. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, it's 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 transferred from one to the other while Petra's still maintaining power over Marlena. So then it, you know, that makes it complicated because we're, we're used to thinking in couples. Sure. Um, and Marlena, while she is pushed aside, she's never gone. Um, and, and that's hard for, for people to figure into the dynamics is, you know, what's having to think of it as more of a hierarchy, hierarchy than a substitution um, that, you know, Karen always is less, she's always less submissive than Marlena. Um, and there's even this question about what is the relationship between Karen and Marlena? Because the first Karen thinks Marlena's weird and, you know, what's wrong with her sure. and why is she here? And, um, but then she gets used to it. You know, Marlena's there to serve her as well. Um, yeah, no, those uh, those ellipses are so kind of disorienting sometimes because <laughs> when it comes back, you're like, wait, how much time has passed? What's the nature of this relationship right. now? Yeah, Six months later. Yeah, or Eight I think a couple later. years later in, right. in the fo- the fourth the to first, the fifth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Years have passed since since Karen has left. Is that what you're mm-hmm. thinking between Karen leaving and and the final birthday? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's been a few years. Um, But then we still we have you know this idea of Karen not really asking for any of this, or did she? Um, or well, what exactly was yeah. she asking for? Yeah, because it's more like she's just. I'm trying to remember how she's introduced. It's just she's just kind of shows up as being a friend, right? Of the right of of Sidonie, yeah, the yeah, yeah, the cousin character. Uh, yeah, and and she's essentially like, hey, I could use you. You have a great figure. You should be a model. Here's my here's my card. So right. And then yeah, there's that that ellipsis. Um. So. <sighs> Why do you think a film like Petra von Kant is canonized? What makes this an important film in, in film history? Or should it be? Or shouldn't it be? Or... <laughs> I, assume it, I, I assume it should be because you've taught it in class and I, well, chose it as yeah, a... No, yeah. I, I do think it's valuable. Um, you know, it's a... One of the things that I like about it is that you know, it is adapted from the stage play. Um, but it's not one of those films that completely just feels like a one scene play on film. Um, so I think that's hugely valuable, you know, showing how this transition between mediums can go, you know, there are things like, um, parts of death and the maiden that feel very stagey. Um, yeah. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, I think yeah. of the same thing. Yeah. You know, it just, you feel like you're watching a play. Um, but I think Fassbender took his play and then broke away from that. Um, but, you know, that aside, I think it's important in the context of 
new German cinema because it's not really, you know, it's not really one of the films that's reckoning with the war um, in the way that Ali Furies the Soul sort of free mentions it uh, over and over again, mentions it. Um, and then the marriage of Maria Brown is all about the war. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, doing something different in that respect, um, you know, moving German cinema in a different direction that way um, towards these stories of people who haven't been thought about. Um, you know, if we're thinking of them as explicitly queer characters. Um, well, that's that's kind of where I was going to go with um, the film and, and Fassbender's legacy in general. Is part of me is wondering if we'd make this weird analogy to '70s New Hollywood, where essentially you have Coppola and Spielberg and all these guys taking old genres and freshening mm-hmm. them up with like new material, right? Right. In a certain way, Fassbender's doing the same thing. He's just taking Cirque and he's like, okay, we're making these crazy beautiful formalist right. colorful melodramas like Cirque did but we're making it about gay characters now yeah yes and no uh, because you know I I read Ollie Fury's The Soul sure. I mean that's usually compared to Cirque and, and all that happened in the last or, or untraditional relationships right, I should I should yeah, yeah yeah but even you know my students really like the marriage of Maria Brown the best um, and that's sort of non-traditional i mean but it's because of questions of fidelity and infidelity but um you know that's a pretty traditional man woman husband okay. and wife who stay right. dedicated then, to then, each then other. my then my hypothesis so, is completely so broken it's not all queer characters. <laughs> um but there is that that element of you know you know like hollywood news the new hollywood directors like godard like taking these well-worn genres and and doing something new with them and i would say that petra von kant is the least like cirque um at least like cirque's melodramas just because it is so insular and has less to do with those big questions of society um than fassbender's other films in this period you know it's just so so insular um that it's hard to even try and allegorize something about the German state mm. about the film, you know, is Marlena get is Marlena East Germany and Karen is West <laughs> Germany and Petra is mother Germany unified. And, and of course Marlena has to be the East because she's silent and nothing radio silence from there. Um, and Karen is the decadence of the West because she's come from Australia. I don't know. Um, so yeah, so I think that the bitter tears of Petra von Kant is in this weird spot in Fassbender's career and in his sort of exploration of melodrama too, um, just because of that insular nature of the film. You know, just having these characters encapsulated in this apartment um, with with little contact. Hmm. Uh, you know, the more you think about it, the more claustrophobic it starts to feel. You know, the the room set up, the the 
the set is spacious and and we move around a lot but then when you think about okay we never leave this apartment building and even just how oppressive the shadows can be and the use of the venetian blinds yeah and just you know other figures hovering in the frame whether it's the cat or yeah or the mannequins yeah so it's I think that's that's part of why, you know, it stands out. Although, um, you know, it's not the only Fassbender film I think deserves sort of canonical status. But um, I think it, that that's why it stands out because it is so different from a lot of the rest of what he did. Um, you know, it's not really concerned with society at all. Okay. Yeah, no. The, so this would be interesting as I as I keep exploring. I actually just got Merchant of Four Seasons in the mail today, so I'm like, all right, that's that's next on the list. So I'm gonna keep trying to explore this. But yeah, no. What's what's really surprised me from this whole thing is this this kind of four day jaunt of of watching his movies. And I got Berlin and Alexander Platz, and I'm gonna try to watch <laughs> that over spring break. But you know, it's like, I mean, you said he was prolific, and it's like not only is he prolific but some of these things are like 10 hours long yeah long but yeah like i mean the the standout though the standout takeaway is just how as soon as i feel like i've got an idea of how his movies work or what his style is that i get surprised by the next movie i pick up in the pile and yeah no it's 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 constantly reorienting me yeah i mean for me that's a great thing um to to be surprised by a director um you know and not just have it be the same thing over and over you know okay we get it you know could you really have made 40 plus films if they were all the same yeah i don't know that sounds like chemistry to me Uh, (laughs) sounds like running the same experiment every day um but I think that's, you know, but then you, you see these other films of his and the way they operate. And then you still think back to, to what you've already watched and be like, OK, how do we get from point A to point B? Or how can I see point B and point A and point A and point B? You know, what relationship does Pedro von Kant have to Fox and his friends? And what does that have in common with Ollie Fruits of Soul or Berlin Alexander Platz or um, you know if, are you taking all the way to Carell and sure. um, the end of the line so <laughs> you know mapping those connections I think is really fruitful um, even if they seem so different absolutely well, I thank you so much for your time today. Uh, when I finally sit down and watch some Claire Denis films, I'll have to have you back on and we'll have to walk through some of those. Sounds good to me. Thank you for having me. It was fun to talk about Fassbender. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Allison on Fassbender's Bitter, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. I'm certainly excited to keep working through his filmography. Uh, in the meantime, I don't have a next guest to announce. I haven't nailed it down yet. I'm just trying to get this episode out quickly before I head off on a little bit of a vacation. Um, But in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at The Cinema Doctor. Um, 
please feel free to share the podcast, review us on iTunes, all that good stuff. And if uh, you're a fellow academic out there who wants to cross a movie off your bucket list, uh, pop me a note. I'd be happy to uh, have you on and walk through something with you. In the meantime, I'll see you at the movies. Take care.